0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
1: Well, as you were sleeping, or I guess it was uh, around 1130 our time, maybe getting ready for bed, depending on what your uh, Tuesday looked like. uh, In the nation's capital, they were busy passing a uh, controversial piece of legislation, Bill C-10, which ostensibly is about modernizing the Broadcasting Act, seemed to become about a lot of other things along the way, particularly as pertains to regulating the Internet, regulating user content on the Internet. And I suppose by now, most of you are probably familiar with some of the twists and turns here. Uh, Essentially, the the big part of all of this is the fact that originally there were some exemptions built into legislation to make it clear that this was not about regulating user content, only to then have those, um, those protections removed. The Liberals have tried all kinds of tricks to uh, wrap up the debate on this bill. And uh, that all culminated 1.30 in the morning Ottawa time with the Liberals, with some help from the bloc, uh, getting this bill passed. It now goes to the Senate, mind you. And we'll see uh, what the Senate's prepared to do with this and whether it gets passed uh, before it dies on the order paper. So it's not a done deal just yet. But still, I think a lot of reason to be concerned about the rush to get this passed and you know what the uh, implications of this legislation might actually be. Someone who has been following all of this very closely, in fact, testified uh, to the committee that was studying this legislation, is uh, Dr. Michael Geist, who's a law professor, Canada Research Chair in Internet and e-commerce law at the University of Ottawa, or his website, michaelgeist.ca, including his piece today on what he describes as Midnight Madness in Ottawa. Professor Geist, thanks for joining us here. Welcome to the oh, program.
2: Thanks. Oh, thanks so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I mean, we kind of knew it was going to get to this point fairly soon here, you know, the, the gag orders, the, the motion to limit debate. But what did you make, first of all, what happened last night or this morning, I guess?
2: Well, I mean, I think any time that you're literally pushing through legislation with no debate, uh, literally in the middle of the night, with the votes at 1.30, including amendments that took place right around midnight that, once again, were not debated or the subject of any sort of uh, real discussion, is not a piece of legislation that you're going to be particularly proud of, for one thing. But I think at the end of the day, the government was just determined to push this through, really kind of ignoring some of the basic norms I think most people would expect, and they're trying to put it in the window because, as you suggest, the chances that the Senate at this stage certainly picks this up and puts it on the same kind of rocket docket uh, seems pretty unlikely.
1: Right. So, it, it, I mean, it's parliamentary procedure, I suppose, but um, th- does it seem likely from what you've been observing that this will end up, uh, you know, dying on the order paper?
2: Well, I mean, of, of course, there are no guarantees that we're going to have an election call. But uh, at yeah. this stage, we've had senators really from, from all political perspectives, those that have traditionally seen themselves more as, as liberals as well as those that lead on the conservative side in the Senate, have really all said that they don't anticipate this legislation passing quite literally in in the span of a few days, which is what is left in the session before uh, they take a break for the summer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I think there's good reason for that. The House of Commons committee study was woefully inadequate. Not only did they pass amendments in this legislation that were never debated, weren't even publicly disclosed at the time that they were voting on them, but they didn't hear from some really some essential witnesses, you know, digital first Canadian creators or some of the tech companies that are being regulated or consumer groups on the price impact on consumers. None of those groups were ever called before committee. So it really does fall to the Senate to, to pick up uh, where, the, where the government, in a sense, left off or where the committee just didn't, didn't seem see fit to go. But if we end up with this election call, and it's hard to not prognosticate mm-hmm. precisely what happens there, uh, then the bill dies on the order paper unless the Senate does find a way to get this through very quickly.
1: Well, and I know people are cynical at times about the Senate, but I think we've seen on some important piece of legislation, the Senate is willing to take its time, they're willing to have committee meetings and, and have expert witnesses. So I, I, I think there's some optimism that if, if time allows, I mean, the Senate would be prepared to do so in this instance. But it does beg the question, I suppose, then, you know, what, what was the government's rush? Did they just want to be able to, to boast that they passed this? Or what do you make of that?
2: Well, I think the answer is exactly that. I mean, I think they wanted to be able to put it in sort of the proverbial political window to say, "Hey, look what we tried to do." Uh, I think blaming the Senate at this stage uh, is a bit of a non-starter. I mean, they've literally they've left the Senate with just a matter of hours, effectively, uh, to try to deal with this issue. So I don't I don't see that. Tactic working particularly well, but that that would appear to be the what their end game was at least at this stage was simply to say, hey, we did everything we could and and pushed it through. But when you think about what they sacrificed in order to do it, uh, you know the, the the secret lawmaking in terms of these amendments, the the approval of super motions that really eliminated virtually all debate. Liberal MPs and leaders in the House getting basic things wrong about the bill, even on the last day of, uh, of debate. You know, I think it, from my perspective, you know, if you're a government that kind of founded yourself on the basis of committee independence, of parliamentary democracy, to sacrifice all of those principles for a bill that is going to struggle to become law is, is at best a pretty peculiar choice
1: like any piece of legislation. I mean, I think reasonable people can disagree on, on the merits or the design, but Bill C-10 it was, as it was originally proposed versus Bill C-10 as it is now passed. I mean, how much did things change? What, what are we left with in the final wash here?
2: Well, you know, I think there's a couple of elements there. I mean, I think there's there's certainly the parts that changed, and let's be clear, one of the reasons that we're even having this conversation is that the government made the decision to remove some of the safeguards that they had initially put in the bill for user-generated content. In many ways, that sparked much of the discussion, much of the concern about this legislation Mm -hmm. uh, by expanding its scope from the Netflixes of the world down to now, thousands of Canadians posting materials on YouTube or TikTok or Instagram saying that they wouldn't regulate those individuals, but their content would be subject to regulation. And and I think many identified that as as a serious source of concern. I'd also say that the bill from the very outset was exceptionally broad in scope. I mean, quite literally covering podcast apps and home workout videos and uh, news websites and streaming services from around the world and that's according to the government's own documentation so in that sense the bill didn't change but i think our understanding of just how broad the scope of this legislation did and that certainly heightened i think concern as well
1: so in terms of the opposition and you know holding the government to account and and scrutinizing all of this proposing amendments obviously in the end uh, the government needed some opposition help to get this passed so what do you make of the job they did
2: Well, I mean, yes, they had the support from the the bloc, and to a certain extent, the NDP certainly had the support of the NDP when it came to the bill, uh, although they didn't support all of the tactics. And, you know, I think that it it was the bloc that was really the the partner in crime, so to speak, on this legislation. They were the ones that that goaded the government, in a sense, to saying, hey, you should do whatever you can, even if it means sacrificing some some of the core parliamentary principles. And... And while that may play well in Quebec, or at least the perception is that may play well politically in Quebec, you know, that is a big price to pay. I mean, one, thinking that it's in your best interest as as a national party to align yourself with the bloc on these issues, I think is questionable, even more so to sacrifice some of those core democratic principles in terms of what you focused on when you were elected in the first place to say that somehow this government was different, this is what it prioritized. And then suddenly, out of expediency to align yourself with the bloc and to seek to get this legislation passed, even over the objections of, uh, of, of, of some of your own members, who, in fact, just last night, we had, an, we had a couple of Liberal MPs who abstained, former Liberal Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould uh, actively opposed the legislation. So I think those that that, you know, that have really focused on some of the expression issues came away from the saying this just was a, was a bill that they were pretty uncomfortable supporting.
1: Right, and even though, I mean, you know, one one can go through and read the the legislation as it was passed, there's still all kinds of questions as to, you know, how this would work in practice, what exactly we would be enabling the CRTC to do, how they would enforce all of this, what kind of resources uh, that they might require. I mean, is that still one of the big unanswered questions about all of this?
2: It is, and I think you're right to highlight that this was really one of the big issues here as well. And that is that, you know, there are, there are any number of different possibilities with this legislation, but the amount of uncertainty that it, it fuels by putting so much responsibility into the hands of the CRTC I think raises at least a couple major concerns. One, I think a lot of people don't have much confidence in the CRTC. We've seen what they've done, for example, on connectivity, wireless, and broadband pricing, and they have not clearly not been a friend of Canadian consumers, for one thing. So I think there's real concerns about that unelected CRTC and the way it would move in this direction. But I think that we should also call out the government here. You know, they basically punted on some of the toughest questions and saying, we'll leave it all to the CRTC. And I think that this bill would have, while it still would have faced criticism, it would have at least been a bit more justifiable had the government made some of those hard choices, had it set out the economic thresholds, had it made clear who this would apply to and who was excluded. But they decided not to do any of that. They simply just threw it all out there and said, you know what, someone else will make those decisions. And when you do that, I think you really lose confidence in Canadians to say, you're just not doing your job here, and we're not confident in the party or the entity and the CRTC that you're going to ultimately vest responsibility for doing so
1: we'll let people know much more from you as mentioned michaelgeist.ca and uh we'll see what unfolds here uh over the coming days and weeks regarding the senate and the summer and election call and who knows where we'll be by fall but uh, we certainly appreciate all the work you've done on this and uh, all the insight you've offered to us here thanks again for joining us
2: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Much it, Michael Geist, uh, law professor at the University of Ottawa, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. His website, michaelgeist.ca, and he's blogged extensively about this legislation. So, yes, it's helpful to have someone of his expertise uh, devoting his time to an important issue like this and, and spending some time explaining all of this to us. You know, I, I think it puts us in, in the broadcast industry in an awkward spot because, yeah, I mean, look, it's the position of Canada's broadcasters, which falls the company I work for, that, you know, our broadcast legislation is outdated, needs to be modernized, uh, you know, that there's kind of a, a an unlevel playing field in terms of what we're expected to do versus what other companies that do comparable things are expected to do, right? But I think, you know, that what the liberals did, I think, was essentially a poison pill in this whole conversation. Because there, there were no broadcast companies in Canada that said, hey, Ottawa, please regulate user-generated content, right? It was never supposed to be about that. And why this whole thing veered into that ditch, I'll, I'll never understand. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it was the intent all along if we want to, you know, wade into that territory, but who knows? I think ultimately what this is about is votes. And you might say, well, how are the liberals going to gain votes from bringing stupid legislation, ramming it through? This does the opposite, doesn't it? This is popular in, well, guess where? And if you need a clue, here's a story from the other day, uh, from the Canadian press. Only Quebec music will be allowed to be played in all government buildings and phone lines. (laughs) Culture Minister Natalie Waugh at a news conference Sunday. Sunday news conference, it seems odd, but anyway. The days of royalty-free elevator music are over. So this is something that the Quebec government deems worthy of attention. And this is an actual quote from the minister. I was personally on hold on the phone line at the Ministry of Culture and was shocked to hear an American singer singing a little song in English. Take a moment, thoughts and prayers for Quebec's culture minister, who was on hold... And heard an American singer singing a song in English. That must have been very traumatizing. So, understandably, Quebec is going to fix this whole problem of the music that you hear while you're on hold. Anyway. That explains maybe why this, uh, this bill would have some support in Quebec and why the Liberals have rushed it through and why they're going to run around Quebec during an election campaign and pat themselves on the back for this. I guess the good news, if you want to call it that, is that this isn't actually going to pass in all likelihood. The Liberals can pat themselves on the back for ramming it through Parliament, but unless the Senate is prepared to pass it in the next few days here, It's going to die in the order paper unless we're not actually going to have a fall election and unless the Senate comes back in the fall and continues this session of parliament, at which point then, yes, they could have hearings and debate around this bill. But I think we all know where things are headed. Good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program on the Chorus Radio Network. Rob Breckenridge with you. Plenty to get to over the course of this hour, but we'll start with the news yesterday, the announcement from the federal government that after July 5th, border travel restrictions are going to ease up a little bit for Canadians and might seem like a little bit contradictory or hypocritical on Canada's part. But yes, Canadians can go to the United States for vacation if you're fully vaccinated. When you return, you don't need to quarantine. As long as you test negative, you're good to go. So you would think then, right, an American who's fully vaccinated who tests negative could also come to Canada without having to quarantine. Well, you'd be mistaken. So why might that be? The prime minister was asked about that today, and... Is answer: I'm not sure if it quite adds up that we've got sufficient levels of vaccination to allow for this change as of July 5th, but not to take it the logical next step.
2: But we'll not yet get to the volumes that would be involved in reopening too quickly to uh, foreign travelers, even if they're fully vaccinated. We hope to get there soon and we will be able to get there even sooner if Canadians continue to be so enthusiastic about getting those two doses that they need.
1: Okay. Look, I mean, the more we vaccinate, the easier all of these decisions are going to be. I don't disagree on that, but there's there's some logic missing here from, from the government's explanation, and there, there's some details lacking as well. Make no mistake, this is a step in the right direction. But what is the plan going forward? What metrics are we using then? What is this volume of which he speaks? Well, I don't think I'm the only one noticing... Some of these problems. Matt Gurney wrote a great column about all of this today in the National Post, nationalpost.com, and uh, joins us on the line here this afternoon. Matt, great to have you with us. Welcome back to the program. Oh, thanks for having me. So the prime minister addressed this today. I I don't think it renders anything you wrote moot. What, What did you make of that? Well, you know, I mean, you
0: say he addressed it. I mean, to be honest, that might be somewhat charitable. I mean, he he said something about it. I'm not sure he addressed it in any meaningful way. Look, I I think there is a completely fair, rational answer to give here, which is we're coming out of a third wave. Our vaccine campaign is just really kind of maxing out now. We're keeping the border closed to buy ourselves a few extra weeks and to err on the side of caution. Thank you. Like and like, Canadian politicians can give clear answers. Like I, I don't, I don't know if they realize this. Like I joke sometimes that like, when the Maple Leafs realize they can pass the puck forward instead of just dropping it back, it's gonna, it's gonna revolutionize their game. When Canadian politicians realize they can give direct answers to questions, what a game changer that's gonna be. Uh, you know what? I don't even know if I would agree with that answer, but you could make it. You could say after the terrible third wave we've had, and given the fact that we're just kind of getting our second doses uh, going now, we're going to err on the side of caution, and if we end up keeping that border closed a few extra weeks longer than necessary, I'm prepared to accept that and the consequences of it. And I'll let the voters decide. Like, I know that you and I are trained to give radio-sized answers, so we're trained to be relatively brief and punchy with our comments, but there's no reason a politician can actually can't directly answer questions when they're put to them and yeah
1: okay but then again i think if we're being charitable that's the explanation right they're they're just awkward politicians and that that's just in in their nature but i mean there's a couple of things going on here i mean either they have an idea of where this is all going and they just can't or or won't explain it to canadians or they simply have no idea
0: yeah you know and I, i mentioned that in my column right i mean even before the prime minister had spoken about it, like the column in today's paper obviously was written yesterday. And there had been that press conference where these changes for Canadians uh, who were doubly vaxxed was announced. And Patty Haidu, the health minister, and Bill Blair, the public safety minister were both asked repeatedly about metrics, right? Because they kept saying, oh yeah, well, we're we're relying on metrics. We're relying on uh, public health metrics, which obviously leads to the question of like, well, what are the metrics? And the answer was, well, we have metrics. Okay, well, cool. Well, can you tell us what those metrics are? We have metrics we're relying on. It was becoming almost tautological. Like it was just a completely circular loop of answers where the metrics we have are the metrics we have, and we'll release the metrics we have when we're prepared to release the metrics we have. And I was watching this, and I'm thinking to myself, is this what you and I were just talking about this? Is this typical canadian political aversion to transparency or do they honestly not know yet and you and i have talked about this a lot we were slow coming into this pandemic to even realize it was a thing right you remember Mm -hmm. the rest of canada is low the rest of canada is low the rest of canada is low Uh uh-oh no it's not shut the whole country down they were very slow to react at the beginning and part of me wonders if Just the terminally slow glacial pace of Canadian governance is going to mean we're slow to come out the backside of this thing as well. You know, slow to react when it begins and slow to wrap it up when it's over.
1: When it comes to the hotel quarantine aspect to all of this, and, and I think it's it's part of a, a slow climb down without the government maybe acknowledging that it's a climb down, It's it's been messy, confusing, it hasn't worked well, certainly didn't seem to, to accomplish its design purpose. We had an expert advisory panel even tell the government that no, we probably don't need this anymore. Do you think that's part of this without having to acknowledge that they've screwed up at all, that they're just kind of slowly backing away from this and, and hoping that nobody knows? notices that side
0: of it yeah I think so And I mean you all know the old saying you and the listeners right a camel is a horse designed by committee right so Mm -hmm. you know we we ended up with a completely butt backwards uh, quarantine hotel plan which Rob as you well know many other countries have versions of that have worked just fine it's not like we were trying to invent something that had never been done before it just proved beyond Canada's capacity to do it effectively And, you know, they were slow to roll it out, even though it was ineffective. They only did because they were being criticized by the conservatives, and they got nervous that the criticisms would stick. So they rolled out this broken, ineffective system. And now in the great Canadian tradition of uh, political compromise, you know, no government program once enacted can ever be unwound. So they're going to have to find some way of doing this. You're absolutely right. They could have ended the hotel quarantine program you know, days ago, weeks ago, not not necessarily because it was no longer necessary, but, but they could, because they could have acknowledged the fact that it was just a complete bust. It had been uniformly banned by everyone involved in this. This program had absolutely no one defending it. But as you say, instead of doing that, we're just going to find some way to kind of let it quietly die a death of neglect in the background somewhere. Yeah, it's very hard to look at any of this and conclude even for a minute that there are any adults in control of any part of our federal pandemic effort.
1: One of the kind of funny aspects to all of this, too, and you touch on it in your piece, because... It almost seemed as though the liberals are caught off guard by something they were telling us all along, that the opposition or media pundits were being too pessimistic about the vaccine rollout. And this was going to work. This was going to go well. And you would all see, you will all see how well it's going to go. Now that it's firing on all cylinders, it, it does almost appear as though the government wasn't prepared for that. It's, it's very strange to me.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I was as worried as anyone was late last year, very early this year, that we were going to be way, way behind, right? This was when we had no clarity about where we were in the delivery sequence for any of these companies. And look, as we know now, we were really well-placed. We've done very, very well. We're well ahead of many of our allies including the ones who have domestic production capacity this is great news i'm not saying that flippantly or dismissively this is genuinely great news for the liberals they're probably going to ride this right to reelection. they've got this genuine good news story they're sitting on i went back and i looked through my writing uh and i began basically as early as february early march going you know what this is going to go a lot better than people think like i was sounding the, the notes of not even caution, I guess, of victory, like mm-hmm. three or four months ago. We should have then been like, OK, well, what are we going to do when we're vaccinated? But we didn't. It seems like we are taking the exact same attitude and response to the end of the pandemic than we took at the beginning of it, which is that it is the job of the Canadian government to respond to each and every predictable and foreseeable situation Only at the very moment it occurs. We have never been ahead of anything on this. The only exception that I could think of is that we were smart to order a bunch of syringes early in the pandemic because we knew we'd need them eventually. I cannot think of a single other incident or issue once in the last 16 months when the Canadian federal government has been proactively ahead of any phase of this pandemic instead of desperately reacting, trying to keep up.
1: Yeah, and I think maybe that's what this uh, latest situation comes down to. As mentioned, NationalPost.com in the paper this morning. uh, Great piece from uh, Matt Gurney. Uh, Matt, it's always great having you on with us. Thanks for joining us here.
0: Remember, the risk to Canadians is low. (laughs) exactly.
1: Until it's not. Matt, always appreciate it. There you go. Matt Gurney, columnist uh, for the National Post, NationalPost.com. So it is an odd set of circumstances that the government is really unsure about what to do here or how to move forward or what's what they're basing their decisions on, you know, being cautious or or prudent is understandable. But, um, you know, what, what are they looking at? What metrics do they have? Because they claim they've got them. We just we don't know what they are and they're not inclined to share them with us. And yes, Winston Churchill definitely played a big role in all of that so to highlight his leadership it's reasonable even to kind of use him as a symbol for why it mattered and here's someone who for a while was just kind of like a you know just a sort of lone voice of sanity out there that you know we got to deal with this problem and and you know nobody else seemed to want to yes absolutely in that sense he's, he's definitely a hero of history does that vindicate his entire existence and everything he ever said or stood for? Well, what's the standard here? Anyway, I think we've managed to, to track down our guest here. Mark Milkey, is an author, columnist, researcher, man of many hats, and is also president of the Sir Winston Churchill Society of Calgary, which is endeavoring to get a Winston Churchill statue built here in Calgary. Mark, uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. You, you bet. Thanks for having me on, Rob. So, first of all, let me get your thoughts on uh, what transpired in Edmonton and the vandalism of the Churchill statue there. I mean, it's kind of par for the course what's happening these days, but uh, what did you make of it, first of all?
3: Well, it's kind of unfortunate, right? Uh, We're in this age where people look at an historical figure— And I think the core problem is when people look at history, um, there's a reverse mistake happening now, reverse of what used to happen in the 20th century. And what I mean by that is in the 20th century, you had ideologies like Marxism, which looked ahead and said, look, we can create a perfect future if only our politicians and all of us do X, Y, and Z. Uh, it was nonsensical for a whole bunch of reasons we don't have to go into. But that you know, that was one of the utopian ideologies of the twentieth century. I think we have a new utopian ideology now, which is people look back and go, Well you know, it's too bad that, you know, history wasn't perfect, that people in, mm-hmm. in history, you know, were not perfect. I mean, think about that. They, they apply utopianism as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, to the past now. And that's nonsensical as well for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, no one's perfect, and not you, not me today. And 100 years from now, there will be things that we believe today that I think uh, people in 2121 21 will look back and say, how could those Canadians believe that? How could that be policy? How could they encourage that? And so I think we need a little more modesty about historical figures. And then, of course, you have a problem with looking at historical figures and saying, well, they don't hold views. You know, we find one view that's out of sorts with our views today. And looking at them in that way, um, well, yeah, they're dead. Like, how would anybody expect them to change their views? So I think it's, you know, in many cases, not always, in many cases, it's unfair to look at historical figures that way. I think you have to look at the time they were in and compare them to others. And the question I always ask people when they bring Winston Churchill, uh, and, you know, some view that, you know, you or I might not agree with today or some comment, and he was pretty progressive for his time, to use that word, um, did they contribute to human freedom and flourishing in their age or not? And the answer for Joseph Stalin, Chairman Mao, Adolf Hitler, and Confederate Civil War generals who were fighting to protect slavery, the answer in those cases is no, they were not contributing to human freedom flourishing in their era in, in contradistinction. Winston Churchill was uh, on any number of issues. He was contributing to freedom and flourishing in his age and long before he fought the Nazis uh, in World War II along with us Canadians and Indians. Uh, you know, people forget that the Indian subcontinent, the subcontinent and the Indian nation contributed uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers and in fact over 400,000 Indian soldiers died. Um, so, you know, this was, this was a world war. Anyway, I think a lot of people forget uh, the contributions of Winston Churchill and everyone else in World War II, and I think it, last week showed, I think, a tremendous amount of disrespect for history, but uh, again, perhaps because whoever did this doesn't know their history.
1: Well, I mean, that's the thing. For all we know, this could have been, you know, Nazi sympathizers who are bitter about the outcome of the war. I mean, we really don't know who did this. But the ironic thing is, if it turned out that it was something like that, right, we wouldn't even entertain any notion of taking down the statue, we'd, you know, have a big effort to clean it up, and we'd hold hands in a circle around it and protect it. And, you know, no way are the Nazis going to bully us here. But When it's others with different agendas or more, quote-unquote, progressive agendas, we have a different reaction. We say, okay, well, let's talk about this, or maybe we should take it down. Maybe it shouldn't be there. It's obviously bothering some people, and that's not a way of dealing with these things, is it?
0: No,
3: no, it's not. And then, again, I mean... Is there any historical figure or person today with, with with which one would agree completely? If anyone agrees with somebody else 100% of the time, somebody's not thinking. Um, and the fact is, uh, Churchill was, you know, people like to think, um, I think Jordan Peterson's talked about this a lot, people like to think, oh, if I lived in you know that era back then, I'd fight slavery, or I'd fight the Nazis, or I'd fight the Marxists. That's actually not human behavior. Most people are followers. Um, Churchill actually was a leader and he was brave. So he fought anti-Semitism in an age where it was pretty routine, including in Great Britain, including in Canada, including the United States. And of course, he fought anti-Semitism in a big way in World War. World War II. Um, so I think you have to compare to, you know, you have to also compare to other cultures. I mean, look, th- there's no question, for example, in Canada that indigenous peoples over the ages um, were, you know, treated poorly, to, to put it mildly. Um, but we also forget that the British, for example, attempted to stamp out slavery in uh, Northwest North America, so Washington State, British Columbia, Alaska. Um, for well uh, for about a century, uh, long after the British outlawed slavery domestically and then in the empire in 1833, slavery existed in Aboriginal communities in British Columbia and in Washington State and in Alaska till the end of the nineteenth century, despite British attempts to stamp it out. So uh, the point here is look no one 's ancestors and i 'm not a big fan of identity politics no one 's ancestors if you really want to attach yourself to someone who had the same ethnicity or color or nationality or whatever it is no one's ancestors get off scot-free when you look in human history i think we all need a little bit more modesty and again the question to ask of anyone's ancestors is did they contribute to human contribute to human freedom and flourishing i mean a good example of this is also the famous five suffragists or mahatma right. gandhi they had views with which everyone today would disagree mahatma gandhi wrote adolf hitler saying i don't think you're the monster you're described Gandhi was wrong about Hitler, but he was right about the necessity of Indian nationalism. The famous five suffragists, Nellie McClung, the statue—the the person who's going to create the statue for us, who's sculpting it now, Danek Mazdenski in Edmonton—created a statue of. Uh, one of the famous five, and um, they had views on uh, eugenics, which are abhorrent, but it doesn't mean they were wrong on suffrage. So I think we need more nuance and context when we look at uh, history and figures in history, and again, um, you know, give them some slack and, and certainly try and put them into context. Again, not everybody passes the test. I would never defend a statue of a southern Confederate general, or certainly tyrants in history, but that's not Winston Churchill. It's not the famous five. It's not Mahatma Gandhi.
1: No, it's not. But, I mean, at the same time, there are, say, more mediocre figures in history or, or figures who maybe accomplished some good things but didn't uh, uh, you know, achieve greatness. What what makes a figure from history statue worthy? But Because that, that's quite a pedestal to put somebody on.
3: Well, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, that's almost an art and not a science, isn't it, Rob? Right. I think in the case of Winston Churchill, all I can say is, look, my, my background is German. Not that I ever cared about that growing up. I mean, I never thought of myself that way. I just thought of myself as a, quote-unquote, normal English Canadian. And the more I know about history, the more I prefer the British system, the rule of law, property rights, you know, capitalism, liberty, uh, the stuff that John Stuart Mill uh, wrote about, or Mary Wollstonecraft on feminism, Um, you know, an early suffragist uh, proponent. Um, Look, I I think with Winston Churchill, I think people need need to grasp, and this is actually a good, you know, maybe teaching moment. It's a cliche, a good learning moment. Uh, without winston churchill in may nineteen forty when he came to power he didn't have to come to power the british were debating his fellow colleagues the king whether maybe someone like lord halifax should be installed as prime minister instead Lord Halifax wasn't in Parliament. He couldn't have argued, um, you know, ferociously as Churchill did for, you know, for the war, for continuing. Um, He also wasn't sure that Great Britain could survive alone with just us Canadians and other Commonwealth countries fighting against the Nazis. So if Lord Halifax had been installed, it's entirely possible that a deal would have been done with Nazi Germany, especially when France fell uh, in June 1940. And imagine a Europe divided between Nazi Germany's, you know, Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany, the Soviets, and uh, then imagine Asia being completely at the mercy of Imperial Japan. And we know what its record was in China. We know about the rape of Nanking. We know about what they did uh, in the rest of Asia. So imagine a world divided between those three powers with the United States and Canada pretty much alone, because I assume South, South America would have gone half fascist and half communist. I mean, imagine a world like that in the 20th century where Nazism, Nazism doesn't die out in 1945 because we beat them, but exists for another, I don't know, four or five decades. I mean, these ideologies have a long shelf life. So I think, you know, if there's anyone that we should have a statue of anywhere on the planet, and there are some local, you know, Alberta connections to Winston Churchill, which is why, you know, we as at the Winston Churchill Society have, you know, started started this project about three or four years ago and, and raised uh, a good, you know, chunk of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the funds necessary to, to pay uh, an excellent sculptor, Danik Mozdensky. Um Look, if you're going to have a statue of anyone on this planet, uh, I think it has to be someone like Winston Churchill without him. The 20 20- century would have been full of ideologies. And people forget that. Individuals matter to history. Lord Halifax had been in power. Um, Look, I I think Great Britain would have fallen or they would have done a deal. And I I think it's entirely, um, you know, abhorrent for anyone to to think that without Winston Churchill the world would have continued, we would have won in 1945. It wouldn't have happened.
1: So where do things stand with the statue and uh, once it's completed where, where is it going to end up?
3: Well, things are going really well. Uh, people can go to, for updates, people can go to um, the Sir Winston Churchill Society of Calgary website. It's calgarychurchill.ca and see updates there and actually see some initial mock-ups uh, of the statue, including the bust. Uh, Danik Mazdansky, by the way, for those who don't know, created statues of Miller uh, McClung, uh, jazz artist Ratio Miller, and also Lester Pearson, among others. Uh, he's just an excellent top-notch uh, sculptor. Uh, we've raised about 200 seventy five thousand other the necessary three hundred thousand for the sculpture and the base and, and the rest of it as to where it'll be well we've we sent some feelers out uh, to the city and others and and we'll see what happens over the next little while initially we had hoped for the summer to put it up but uh it'll be june 6 2022 is what we're hoping the anniversary of d-day um because we're a little delayed covid delayed the foundry uh and so the the final construction of the statue of churchill but again some of the updates will be at churchillcalgary.ca and where it eventually goes you know obviously given last week and the attacks on statues these days you know we'll take all that into account and you know um you know we're also going to try and do consultations this year and you know get feedback but you know uh, These things, one hopes this is just a temporary wave, because, again, look, this is also a sculpture. It's an art sculpture. I'm surprised uh, that nobody mentions that very much these Mm -hmm. days. I mean, when the Taliban attacked two two, two, 2,000-year-old Buddhist statues uh, in the mountains of Afghanistan uh, almost 20 years ago now, people were rightly horrified. Uh, These things are works of art, and whatever else you say, uh, one wants to think— you know, I just think attacking works of art is really, uh, to use an old-fashioned word, you know, one's a philistine who <laughs> does that, or maybe, <laughs> you know, a bit like the Taliban, like really narrow-minded. Uh, and I think there's a lot of that going on these days, and it's unfortunate. Uh, I mean, look, no historical figure and no person alive today. I don't care what your background is. I don't care who you are. No one's perfect. And, uh, again, it's, I think it's slightly unfair, more than slightly unfair, to look at historical figures and expect that they uh, would be exactly like we think in 2021. The reason we've arrived in 2021 is because of things like the right to free expression uh, and much else that Churchill supported. Uh, so I think it's, it's long overdue for people to take a breather, at least those who want to attack everything, uh, that isn't exactly in their accordance with uh, their views today. I, I think that's anti-history, it's anti-reality, it doesn't show a nuanced grasp of history, and it's certainly not in touch with the reality of the human nature in all of us. I'll leave you with this, Robert, if time's running out. Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the famous Soviet dissident said it best, uh, people like to think that good as over there are in them and evil is over there and if only they wipe out you know that person over there or get them off the map or whatever Uh, he said no Um, this is a guy who spent time in the gulag he said the line between good and evil runs through every human heart and I think a lot of people could uh, could serve to grab a little more modesty when it comes to themselves and historical figures because frankly we're we're far more alike than than people realize uh, both bad and good
1: yeah, well said. Churchillcalgary.ca has mentioned the website. Mark Milkey. thanks for making time for us here today. Appreciate it. You bet. Thank you, Rob. All the best. Mark Milkey, president of the Winston Churchill Society of Calgary. We are back with more right after this. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter, at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.